Who are you? What defines you? Is it your family? Is it your culture, your nationality, your geography? I grew up in Mount Druitt. When I was in year 12 at the school I went to, um, not many people went to Mount Druitt in the school I was uh, attending, and we all got to sign our names onto a big piece of wood. It was a boys' school. I think they knew that we just liked to burn things. So we got to burn our names into this piece of wood. And I wrote, Mount Druitt. It was a, I wore it as a badge of honour. Yeah, I grew up in Mount Druitt. And I, I, I don't know, I, I hoped it sort of scared people a little bit. <laughs> what defines you? Is it your choices that you chose to study at Sydney Uni? Does that define you? No, no, I didn't choose to study at Sydney. I chose to study at the Con. Does that, defi- does that define you? Is it that you enrolled in engineering instead of arts? Is it that you enrolled in arts instead of engineering? (laughs) Are you defined by your career, by your looks, by your fashion, by your hipster beard and your body art? What about your interests? Are you defined by your achievements, your successes, your success at work or your success in study, your success in money-making, maybe your success in love-making, in friendship. Who are you? And why are you here? What meaning is there to your life? Are you here to make a difference, to have an impact? Are you here for pleasure or maybe for pain? Are you here to win, though exactly what game are we playing? Are you here for the greater good, whatever that may be? Or is there even an answer to this question? Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist and evolutionary biologist, says that the why question, why am I here, is stupid. You can see what he says when he appeared on Q&A a few years ago, there on page 17. He says, science is working on the problem of the antecedent factors that lead to our existence. Now, why, in any further sense than that, why, in the sense of purpose, is, in my opinion, he says, not a meaningful question. Why, he says, is a silly question. Why is a silly question? You can ask What are the factors that led to something coming into existence? That's a sensible question, but what is the purpose of the universe is a silly question. It has no meaning. Let me say that if the universe at large has no meaning, no purpose, you can be pretty assured then that your brief flicker of existence barely registering on the gigantic scale of the cosmos, that is certainly empty of purpose then as well. That is the bleak, cold uh, conclusion of the atheistic worldview. That is not the view that you find in the Christian Bible. 
The Bible's fundamental answer to the question of who am I is this. We are all defined by our relationship with the God who made us and loved us. And why we are here is to enjoy relationship with Him and ultimately to share His glory. That's the trajectory that we looked at this morning, from death in Adam to glory in Christ. And Jesus, who He is and what He's done, is central to all of this. So to see this tonight, we're going to follow a key theme right throughout the Bible, that we are created by God in His image. That's what we're going to explore, and we're going to follow it through the framework that we looked at this morning. Creation, sin, Israel, Jesus, and glorious new creation. So, point one, creation made in the image of God. Uh, The idea that we're created as human beings in the image of God, of the one true living God, is introduced in the Bible in its very first chapter. You may be familiar with the words from Genesis chapter 1, printed there on page 17. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So two reflections on this. First of all, Humans are unique amongst all God's creatures as His image bearers. Three times in short succession, we're told that humanity is created by God in His image. Nothing else in this creation account does God make in His image. Everything else in Genesis 1 is created according to their kinds. The seed-bearing plants and trees in verses 11 and 12 or the birds and the sea creatures according to their kinds, in verse 21. All the land animals and the crawling things according to their kinds, verses 24 and 25. But when it comes to humanity, God creates humans not according to their kind, but in His own image. There is something unique about human beings amongst all else in God's creation. We're not just further along the evolutionary scale. We're not just clever chimps or, you know, modified bananas. According to God himself, he did something unique when it came to human beings. We alone he created in his own image. But what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Is it about looks? Is it about rationality? Does it mean having a sense of the transcendent? Or is it that we're maybe relational beings like God? Or that we're able to create and make stuff ourselves like He does? 
And all of those have been suggested at different times, but I don't think any of them really hit the mark. Point B, there on your outline, in the uh, image implies representative ruling presence. See, in the ancient world, a king might set up a statue of himself in different parts of his kingdom. And the statue represented his ruling presence. It was saying to everybody, this place too, where you're standing now, this is part of my kingdom, my dominion. Well, the one true living God creates humanity as his images in the world. Humanity is called on to represent God's ruling presence in God's world. So to be created in God's image really is to be given a role, a job description, a calling, if you like, to represent God's ruling presence in His world. And that's why the passage links the idea of image of God to having dominion. God is the one who rules over all the things He's made, and He makes us in His image to rule over aspects of His creation for Him. You can see it there in verse 26. He says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, over the cattle and the wild animals and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Humanity is to have dominion, just means to rule over all the other creatures that God has made. And it's reiterated again there in verse 28 when God tells the newly created human beings, fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living creature that moves on the earth. So humanity has been given this very special role within the rest of creation, to be God's representative ruling presence in the world. Now some people may object that this elevation of humanity over other creatures is not right. Surely we're all just living creatures and humans are no more significant than other primates or dolphins or cockatoos or termites? Well, that's just not the perspective of the Christian Bible or of the one true living God who created all these creatures. Yes, every creature that God creates is valuable. He's created every living creature according to its various kinds. So they all have their special place within God's world. But humanity alone... He has created in His image to have dominion over the other creatures. And here's a little thought for you. Dominion over all the other creatures, even, maybe, in some ultimate sense, over angels. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3 and Hebrews 1.14, if you want to chase that up later. Anyway, God looks at this setup at the end of Genesis 1, and we told he sees everything he's made, and he says, and indeed it was very good. But then let's push a little bit more into this idea of being God's representative ruling presence. Take the ruling presence bit first. That God's called us to be his ruling presence means that collectively and to an extent individually, God gives us the capacity and the gifts needed to fulfill this calling to be His image bearers in His world. So, for example, look at all the amazing things that humans have done 
that demonstrate this dominion God has given us over the rest of creation. You can look from antibiotics through to combine harvesters, through to early, early warning systems for tsunamis, through to selective cultivation of wheat crops to increase yield, through to our ability to train dogs, compromised maybe by our inability to train cats, but (laughs) God has endowed us, hasn't he, with the capacity and gifts that we need to fulfill this task he's given us, to be his image bearers in the world. And that's why God has made you with the individual abilities and skills that you have. Because he wants you to be his image bearer in the world, representing his ruling presence in your own small way. So you can farm or balance the books or treat disease or investigate the physical, chemical, biological phenomena or you can develop new products create new methods, you can frame better laws, you can enforce better practices. He's given you, each of us, all sorts of capabilities that you can use as his image bearer in different ways. From your ability to speak other languages through to your mathematical mind. Whether it be you have a flair for the creative or an eye for detail. However he has made you, he's made you to be his image bearer and represent his ruling presence in his world with the gifts he's given you. But this is to be a representative ruling presence. We are to represent the one true living God in his world, not to be our own little G God. See, being created as his image bearer places us in a position of responsibility towards God. We can't just do whatever we like. We have an obligation to represent him in the world. That means exercising the dominion he entrusts to us for him. We have to do it in line with his purposes, his desires, but also in a way that reflects his character. Because we're his representative image bearers. So if you want a job description for your life, here it is. I mean, lots of people at uni wonder what they ought to do with their life. Well, here's God's plan for you. In fact, what he's made you for. To be an instance of his representative presence in the world, exercising dominion as far as you are able for him. In line with his purposes, his desires, and in a way that reflects his character. Now, you don't have to look very hard to see that we constantly fail to live up to that calling, to be God's faithful image bearers in his world. 
which brings us then to the impact of sin over the page on page 18. I mean, God creates all the creatures according to their various kinds, but we, as his representative image bearers, we've managed to kill off numerous types of animals, brought them to extinction. God loves justice, we know from the Scriptures, and yet as his image bearers, we readily pursue self-interest and corruption. God, we know from the Bible, abounds in mercy... And yet we, as his representative image bearers, struggle to find compassion for refugees or the poor or the old. God, we know, uses his power to sacrificially serve us. And yet we use the power he's given to us to serve ourselves, to harm each other, to destroy the world, damage ourselves and even use the gifts he's given us to belittle him who gave them to us. It's not hard to see the numerous ways and places in which we fail to be the image bearers God has created us to be. In fact, it's everywhere we look. In our relationships with each other, in our relationships with the rest of the created world, and most of all, in our relationship with God himself. And God points out to us in the Bible that it's our relationship with him that is the basic problem. Being an image bearer puts us in this relationship with the one whose image we bear and it's that relationship that we've failed to honour most of all. And the Bible makes this very clear by putting it right at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 2 and 3, in the account of Adam and Eve in the garden, we have God's authoritative account of what has gone wrong with our image bearing. The story of Adam and Eve is not just their story, it's the story of every single one of us. So it's worth noting what it says. So in Genesis 2, God places Adam and Eve there in the garden and he provides, if you know the story, all these wonderful fruit trees from which they can eat. And he says, which is there on your page from Genesis 2, 16 and 17, and the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Notice what God does here. He speaks to the man and explains the boundary that the man should observe for his own good. He warns the man that if he does eat of this particular tree, he will die. So the man, the man has God's word, his command which contains God's wisdom, God's knowledge of the way things really are, even despite maybe their appearance. It's God's word about God's wisdom, about God's way, how to live a flourishing good life in God's world. So as God's image bearer, what do you reckon the man should do? He should stick to the program, right? If he's going to faithfully represent God's presence in the world, then he needs to heed God's word, take on God's wisdom, and show and teach God's way. But that's not what they did. Adam and his wife Eve failed to be faithful image bearers of God. 
Genesis 3 verse 6 there. So when the woman saw that the tree, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is a devastating moment. Both Adam and Eve are culpable here. They've failed to be faithful image bearers of God. They've rejected God's word. They've ignored his wisdom. They've abandoned his way. And that's what the Bible calls sin. Rebellion against God in rejecting his word, his wisdom and his way. And when you think about it, Sin really is stupid. Who's going to know what really is best for you? Who is really going to know what's best for us and for the world at large? Us? Or maybe it might be the good and loving God who made us and everything else. Do you think maybe he might know what's best? Listen to how God explains the stupid heart of sin to the prophet Jeremiah. There on your page. My people have committed two sins, says the Lord. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So if you're in desperate need of water, why would you turn away from a beautiful spring of clean, pure water? To turn away from such a thing when you're desperate for water, that would just be stupid, wouldn't it? But to make it even worse, why would you ignore that stream and insist instead to dig your own well, despite the fact that the well you've dug has a massive leak in it and can't hold any water? See, the stupid heart of sin refuses God's word, wisdom and way and insists instead that we can do it ourselves, that our wisdom is better and our way of living in the world will be better than God's. That's what Adam and Eve did and that's what we all do. Every time we do something that doesn't align with God's word to us in his Bible. So when we lack compassion, that's the stupid heart of sin. When we turn a blind eye to injustice, when we find loving our neighbour just too exhausting, when we hold on to grudges, or when we're greedy, or self-centered, or impatient, or sleep around, or get drunk, or cheat on our taxes, or lie to cover our mistakes, or steal illegal downloads, or slander someone behind their back, when we hate someone in our heart, when we let anger erupt in violence or abusive speech, when we disrespect our parents when we hold anything else other than God as utmost in our affections and devotion, it's all stupid sin. 
And the great human tragedy is that this stupid sin is universal. See, without the work of God in our hearts, we are all hard-hearted and stubborn towards God. Uh, Romans 3 on your page, Paul puts it like this. He says, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Our universal problem is that we are under the power of sin. That's why we reject God's word, wisdom, and his way. It's why we fail to be the faithful image bearers that he's made us to be. Sin has taken root in our heart. Sin holds us under its destructive power. And this has some devastating consequences. Top of page 19. The consequences of our sin are destructive and deadly. At one level, because sin is so stupid and we've rejected God's word, wisdom and way, it's no surprise really, is it, that our lives are not as we'd hoped they'd be. The consequences of our failure to image God faithfully mean we harm one another, we harm ourselves, we harm the world in which God has placed us. But even more, by rebelling against the God who made us and loved us and gave us His calling, we bring on ourselves His fair judgment. Genesis 3 makes clear the consequences of our sin our exclusion from God's presence and death. Uh, first of all, exclusion. You can see there Genesis 3, 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim with a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, away from God's presence. They're cut off from the tree of life, which was the God-given antidote to their mortality. That is, under God's judgment for our sin, we're excluded and our destiny is now death. Genesis 3.19 there. Return to the ground, says the Lord, for out of it you were taken, you were dust, and to dust you shall return. This is a, the constant message actually throughout the Bible from beginning to end, that the consequence of our sin is that it makes us God's enemies 
with the result that we are excluded from his presence and destined for death. So I'll throw a few verses up here on the screen for you. Example, Romans 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin, we're told, is death. That's what sin gets under God's fair judgment. Or Ephesians 2, 1 to 2. Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Or Ezra 9, verse 15. God's people say, here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Where does this leave us? Well, this is the, tra- ter- the terrible, tragic state in which we find ourselves. We're enemies of God, cut off from His presence and dead in our trespasses and sins. We're both agents and victims, actually, under sin's power. We suffer as victims because of other people's rejection of God's word, wisdom and way. And tragically, we do the same thing in our own way to others. And we all do it to God. And so we're all facing the same consequences, exclusion from his presence and death. Now, it's interesting that our society continues to downplay the severity of this situation. It attempts to minimise the seriousness of being an enemy of God. Who needs God, we brazenly proclaim. And we dismiss the severity of exclusion from His presence. I'm just getting on enjoying this world, thanks. And we try to redefine or ignore death. Ah, oh, death. Death is just a doorway. Or there's nothing to fear in death because death is a nothing. But see, all of those responses are just sticking our head into the sand. The consequences of us failing to be the faithful image bearers of God that he's made us to be are devastating and deadly, as we'll see in a moment when we come to the Lord Jesus. Well, point three there on your outline, the nation of Israel called to be God's image bearers. So we saw this morning, it's through the nation of Israel and the covenants that God makes with her that he re-establishes his good purposes for his creation. So we'd expect that Israel would be called on to be God's image bearers. And that indeed is the case, even though the phrase image of God is not used. But the idea is there in how God calls Israel to reflect his priorities and his character. Now, I'm going to leave you to read through the examples there on page 19 from Leviticus, Exodus and Deuteronomy. We don't have time to go into it, so I'm going to leave that for you to read later. But the thing to note is, despite this calling to image God as his representative presence in the world, Israel repeatedly failed. So you can find places in the Old Testament where God criticizes Israel for failing to do exactly the things that he just told them to do in those passages listed there. So if you look up Ezekiel 22, 26 or Micah 6, 10 to 13, you'll see the Lord has to say, I've asked you to do this to image me in the world, but you're not doing it. Why? Because Israel too 
was under the power of sin. Which brings us then to Jesus, over the page on page 20. God God loves this world he has made so much and so he will not let his good plans for this world fall to the ground. God the eternal son takes on human flesh and comes among us as the man Jesus as we saw this afternoon, fully God, fully human. Jesus in the truest sense is the image of God. You can see there how the New Testament puts it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Christ who is the image of God. Or Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. As we saw this afternoon, Philip asked Jesus to show him the Father. Jesus' reply was, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus comes as the true image of God. He perfectly represents God's ruling presence in the world. You can see this, um, I looked through John's Gospel and just looked for the different ways that Jesus acted in relationship to his Father, to see how does Jesus image his Father. You've got the little diagram there on your page, right? And if you look through John's Gospel, you can see things like, in John chapter 8, verse 55, Jesus is fully obedient to his Father in all things. Or in John 15, verse 9, Jesus loves as the Father loves. Or in John 8, 16, he judges as the Father judges. See how he's perfectly imaging representing God's presence in the world. Or in John 5.19, he does what the Father does. Or in John 8.28, he speaks as his Father tells him to. Jesus perfectly images his Father. He's his representative ruling presence in the world. But that's not all, actually. As you'd expect, if he is the one who truly is the image of God amongst us, you would expect that he might tell us the situation that the rest of us are in as failed image bearers. Maybe he'll give us the true story on what's going to happen to us. And that that indeed is what he does. In particular, Jesus reveals two key truths to us. First of all, that there is a final judgment for us still to come. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
And down a bit further in verse 41. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You are accursed. Depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You cannot read this teaching from the mouth of Jesus without being profoundly unsettled. There is a final judgment for how we've lived as God's image bearers in the world. And physical death is not the greatest problem for our failure as image bearers. It's the judgment after death. This is why sticking your head in the sand and pretending that death is nothing is so tragic. Death is not the end for any of us. Paul puts it like this there in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And what is at stake here is more fearsome than physical death. It's hell. Listen to Jesus again, Luke 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What is hell? Hell is the experience of the full righteous wrath of God against our personal rebellion as his image bearers. And Jesus says, you should do anything you can to avoid being sent there. It's worth avoiding at all costs. In Mark 9, Jesus says, if you could avoid hell, by plucking out your eye because it's causing you to sin, then you should do so. He says, if you can avoid hell by chopping off your hand or your foot because it's causing you to sin, then do so. Hell is that severe and awful. Now, we know that getting rid of an eye or a hand or a foot is not going to solve the problem, is it? Because we've seen all the way through this story, the real problem is a problem of our hearts our desires, our will. We don't want to listen to God's word, wisdom or way. We want to do things ourselves, our own way. And the sobering truth is we will be held accountable for it. And Jesus' point is that facing the full extent of God's wrath against our personal failure to live as his faithful image bearers, that is more awful than we can imagine. Now, that's not a truth we like to hear. It makes us uncomfortable. It is disturbing. It's not something we want to think about. And it's certainly not a truth that our world wants to hear. It's offensive, they say. How dare you say that I'm going to be judged by someone else's standards, even if it's Jesus? 
How dare you suggest that I will come up short? It's decried, actually, as harmful. You're creating fear by talking in this way. You're scaring people. You're harming people psychologically by making them scared. It's manipulative and therefore it's abusive to talk like this. It's seen as intolerant. How dare you privilege your beliefs over everyone else's? How dare you proclaim that those who believe differently and don't convert to your faith will end up in hell? That's offensively one-eyed. That's offensively bigoted and intolerant. And it goes against common sense, which says all these religious beliefs are just subjective private beliefs. There's no real objective public truth in any of your claims. So you can't go around slamming other people's views and telling them they're wrong, especially when you claim it's hell that is in play. Those are the things that our world says. And yet, If we're going to believe that Jesus is the image of God who speaks what he has heard from the Father, then surely this truth from his lips must be squarely faced. He says we are all going to be held accountable in a final judgment before himself for how we have borne God's image in the world. Eternity is at stake, and without the intervention of God, we are all under the power of sin. And so we know that it is God's wrath, His his condemnation, not His commendation, that we will receive. Now, knowing that truth might be scary, and yes, maybe it does induce some fear, but I want to suggest to you, I don't think that's necessarily bad. There is fear that is bad. That's inappropriate fear is bad. Fear that paralyzes you. Fear that is induced by an abuse of power. That's bad. But some fear can be for your good. When I was uh, in India for a year, many years ago with my wife, we were teaching in a school there for the children of uh, LRLR workers around that part of Asia. I took, um, well, the school organised regular sort of weekend treks. And I was taking uh, a group of, I think they were sort of year 10 students on this weekend trek into a fairly remote part of India. And we had a briefing session before we left where some experienced people came and they said, okay, we have to tell you what to do if you meet an elephant and we also have to tell you what to do if you meet a tiger. Which was sort of interesting because the particular area I had to take our group of Year 10 students into, there had been tiger sightings within the last couple of weeks. In fact, one of the places we... This is not really relevant to the point I'm making, but one of the places we stayed... If you went down next to the lake and looked at a particular tree and looked up, you could see the scratch marks where the tiger had come past and reached up like cats do and sharpened their claws down the trunk of the tree. It was 10 to 12 feet high from where the scratches start. Tigers are really big. (laughs) 
So we had this briefing on what to do if you're face-to-face with an elephant and what to do if you're face-to-face with a tiger. So I, I know I'll know those answers to those questions, which I'll share with you some other time. <laughs> it's okay to be afraid of a tiger. It's okay to be fearful of a tiger, provided that fear motivates you. In fact, fear can be the beginning of wisdom. If that fear drives you to take evasive action, to seek for safety and shelter, then that fear is a good thing. And in this case, with a final judgment that we know we will all face, don't you think that it's fair? Don't you think that it's right? Maybe, yes, isn't it an act of love to let people know about it so that they might have a right fear that leads them to take the evasive action that Jesus provides. In fact, I think love compels us to speak about these things. How is it loving to keep the facts from someone, allowing them to live comfortably now in ignorance if the consequence of them not knowing are potentially hell? Is that really fair? Is that really right? The Apostle Paul put it like this in a verse we looked at a moment ago from 2 Corinthians 5. He says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Or in verse 14, For Christ's love compels us, he says, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. So two things to notice here. If you understand that there is a moment of judgment coming where we're all going to be held accountable for how we've failed to be faithful image bearers, and you know that hell is the destiny, therefore, for which we're all, all headed, how can you not tell people? Paul got it right. That's why he sought to persuade others. How can you not weep for them when you know that judgment is coming? How can we keep the information for ourselves? Is that really what love looks like? Perish the thought, but I do wonder if sometimes we put a higher premium on our own comfort, on not rocking the social boat, than on their certain judgment. But second, Paul lists there in verse 14 a second motivation as well. His conviction that in great love Jesus has died to save them from this coming judgment. Which then brings us to point two on page 21. Jesus rescues us from this judgment we deserve. Now, I can imagine a scenario where, I mean, if something terrible was about to take place and there was nothing anyone could do about it, maybe we might judge that it's more loving in that situation just to let people go to their demise in comfortable ignorance. But that is not the case with Christianity. We know, yes, there's a day of judgment coming, but we also wonderfully know that for those who want it, there is absolutely no need to go to that day facing God's wrath. This is the wonderful good news of God's gospel, of who Jesus is and what he's done. Precisely as we've seen throughout this story, God will not let his intentions for his creatures fall to the ground. He loves us. He loves all that he has made. 
He doesn't want anyone to perish, even under his fair judgment. So God the Son takes on human flesh, comes amongst us as the man Jesus, as our great representative and substitute, to take our place under that judgment that we deserve. The great image of God took all of our guilt for our failure to be faithful image bearers. And he bore the terrible consequences of his Father's wrath in himself instead of us. So, instead of us being excluded from God's presence, Jesus was excluded in our place. You can see this when Jesus cries out from the cross in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. He says, we read there, and about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama samachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is excluded instead of us. And instead of us facing the full weight of God's wrath, Jesus dies the death we deserve. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Or as Romans 8 verse 3 puts it, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That is in the flesh of Jesus. Jesus is condemned in our place. He's taken the exclusion and death that only we deserve. That's what Jesus' death on the cross is all about, right? It's the terrible but wonderful place where God's judgment and his love come together, where God's judgment on human sin is poured out, but born by God himself in the person of his son Jesus out of his great love for us. So 1 John 4 verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means something that turns away anger. Jesus was sent by God the Father to turn away God's wrath from our sins, which Jesus did by taking them upon himself. And as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God fulfills his good intentions for us by rescuing us from the judgment we deserve as failed image bearers through the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, bearing the judgment that should have been ours. Uh, John Stott put it like this in a, a great book, The Cross of Christ. You should all read that sometime. He says, the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. 
God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. That's the love of God. That's the justice of God. That is the Christian gospel. That's why the cross is the symbol not just of God's justice, where he finally gave sin what it deserved, but it's also the symbol of God's incredible love, where God the Son took our place and the terrible penalty that only we deserve, so that you and I can be saved from it. So if you ever want to understand how precious you are to God, just look at the cross. That's where you see God's love for you writ large. He willingly went through this for you. And the astounding thing is that God did this for us not when we were his friends. He did it when we'd rejected his word, his wisdom and his way. He did it when we'd made ourselves his enemies. Paul again in Romans 5, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That's how much God loves you. Have you taken hold of the rescue that Jesus has won in love for you? Have you entrusted yourself to him in faith and repentance? Because here's God's promise there on your page from John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Can you imagine a situation where you had to sit an exam that you knew categorically you were going to fail? There was no possibility of you passing. Imagine you had that situation. But then imagine that someone said, Ah, but if you just do this, you don't have to sit the exam. Right? So there's an exam that you know you will fail, but there's a way out. But you say... I'll go and sit the exam. Why would you do that? Why would you sit an exam that you know you will fail when you don't have to? Jesus died for you under God's wrath against your sin so that you don't have to face God's fair wrath against you as an unfaithful image-bearer. Jesus has already taken the rap. He's already done the time. He's paid the penalty in full. Why face hell under God's wrath when you don't need to? When God doesn't want you to? When Jesus did it for you, turn to Jesus. 
entrust yourself to Him in thanks and faith. Because whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, I know many of you have already put your faith in Jesus. Let me ask you this question. When you get up each morning, bleary-eyed at about 11.30, because you're an art student. <laughs> oh, I'll be fair, be fair. I mean, they only have to get up at 11.30 on Tuesdays and Thursdays. The other days, they don't have to get up at all. <laughs> True story, hey. Um, when you get up each morning bleary-eyed and you stagger into the bathroom and you look in the mirror... What do you see when you look in the mirror? Do you see someone who's a failure in your own eyes? Do you see someone who has dark secrets that no one knows about? Do you see someone who's just striving harder and harder but to an uncertain end. Do you see someone who is beautiful? Do you see someone who is confused? Do you see someone who is angry or bitter? Do you see someone who's in pain? Do you see someone who's straight? Do you see someone who's gay? Do you see someone with big ideas, big plans? Do you see someone who just feels ignored or not understood? Do you see someone who's longing just to be loved, to matter, to count in someone's affections? Whoever it is that you see, God sees you as incredibly, unfathomably precious to Him. He made you. And despite your failure to be His faithful image bearer, out of the enormous reservoirs of His heavenly love, Jesus willingly gave himself for you. That is how wonderfully, astoundingly much God loves you. And friend, you need to know that every single day. Because that truth that he made and loved you in Christ is the most profound and wonder-filled truth about you. I know there are lots of other true things about you, but the most wonderful and profound truth about you is that He made you and loved you in Christ. 
There's a story about Karl Barth, who's probably the greatest Christian theologian of the 20th century. He wrote numerous books. His church dogmatics alone stretches to I don't know how many volumes, but it, it fills up pretty much a whole shelf on my bookshelf. But the story goes, this incredibly learned theologian, the story goes that one day someone asked him, Professor Barth, or they would have done it in German, which I can't speak, so we'll do it in English. Professor Barth, with all of your great learning, what is the greatest truth that you've learned about God? And the professor answered, quoting a children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You are loved by Him. Look no further than the cross. Start each and every day with that reminder. God, God loves me that much. That Well, what's the result for those who are now in Christ through faith? Instead of being judged, we're saved. Instead of being dead, we're alive. Instead of being excluded, we're brought in. These are the great blessings of the gospel that are celebrated throughout the New Testament as testimony to what God has done for us in Jesus. You can just see one example there on your page, Ephesians 2, 4 to 10. As I read it, I want you just to look out for those key blessings, right? Of being saved from judgment, of no longer excluded, and of having life instead of death. See if you can underline them as we go through, right? Moment to focus. Paul says, All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what He has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Note what results from God's love towards us in Jesus. Verse 5, we've been saved. Verse 6, instead of death, we've now been raised up with Jesus. We share Jesus' resurrection life. And also in verse 6, we're now included with Jesus in the heavenly places. So instead of being excluded from God's presence, we now have a seat with Jesus in God's heavenly presence. And how do you take hold of these blessings? Through faith, through entrusting ourselves in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus. That's what he says in verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It's the gift of God. So we're saved, we're raised to life, we're, exclu- we're no longer excluded, we're brought in. But it's not just that the penalties of failing to be a faithful image bearer are now removed, the good news of the gospel is even more than that. It also means now that if you are in Christ by faith, you are being renovated. I don't know why Australia is obsessed with renovation. I don't know why. My family watches the block. We watch way too much reality TV. But I said to them even this week when one of our children said, we watch more reality TV than most. I don't know how they know that. They just come out with these statements. Um, I, I said, well, you know, I just like to think we're more in touch with reality than most. I don't know if that stands up to analysis. Anyway... We watch The Block when it's on, a renovation show, completely mindless. But Australians at large, the reason The Block works for however many seasons they've done is because Australians are obsessed with renovation, rebuilding things, making it better. Well, God is in the renovation business And he is remaking you. He's renovating you so you might become a faithful image bearer. That is what God is doing. He's not just rescued you from the penalty of your failure as an image bearer. He's now renovating you, recreating you as a faithful image bearer. You can see this, Paul puts it there in Romans 8, verse 29, uh, 28 and 29. He says, We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image, there's that key word again, of His Son. God's renovation project is to remake each of us in the image of Jesus who is himself the image of God. Remember a creation we created in God's image? Now God is recovering that original good intention by recreating us into Jesus' image, who is himself the image of the Father. And that is what God is doing in you each and every day. Through every circumstance in which you find yourself. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, says Paul, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That is this transformation that God is working in you to make you more and more into the image of Jesus. This happens through His Spirit working in us requires our active cooperation with His Spirit. Paul's exhortations to Christians to cooperate with the Spirit of God working within them so they might become more and more like Jesus. You can see what he says there in Romans 8. He says, But you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So God is working in you by the Spirit, enabling you when those moments of temptation come and you go, am I going to be God's faithful image bearer or not? He is empowering you by His Spirit in those moments to go, I am no longer mastered by sin. I am no longer sin slave. In the power of His Spirit within me, I choose to be a faithful image bearer. Now, you will still stuff up plenty of times. You're not going to get it completely right now. But God is working in you, enabling you to put to death the misdeeds of the body so that you might be a more faithful image bearer. But even that's not the final story. The final stage, as we come to the end, is when Jesus returns and the glorious new creation comes in all its fullness. This is when God's renovation project in your life will finally be completed, when you will finally be like Jesus in your character, in your passions, in your obedience to God. Now, Colossians 3 verse 4, when Christ who is your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Or well, 1 John 3, what we, have, what we will be has not yet been revealed, but what we do know is this, when He is revealed, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. There's Again, our final trajectory, finally remade in the image of Jesus, who is the image of God, sharing His glory. And if you're in Christ by faith, that is your trajectory. That's where God is taking you. In fact, that's what He's doing now, today and tomorrow, transforming you day by day into Jesus' image. So what conclusion do we draw from this? Three things. First of all, this new relationship we have with God in Christ, is at the very core of our being. It is the most important and fundamental truth about you. Our relationship with God in Christ always defines us because He's the one who made us and loved us and offers to remake and transform us into the image of Jesus. This, this new identity as a remade image bearer, is a wonderful gift of God to us, which He gives out of His great love for us as His creatures. And it's a gift that we desperately all need. It's a gift that's thoroughly undeserved and yet freely given by God at great cost to Himself. And this new identity, as a remade image bearer in Christ, that shapes everything else in our life. Uh, Paul put it this way in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is God's desire for you, that you might move from being in Adam to in Christ that you would take hold of Jesus' death in your place as a failed image bearer and be remade by Him in His image and one day to be revealed with Jesus in glory. 
And if you haven't taken hold of this gift of God, why put it off? Whoever believes in Jesus, the Son, has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. If you've not yet committed yourself to Jesus in faith, make sure you do it this week. Eternity is at stake. Maybe you want to pray with somebody about that tonight. Maybe you want to just talk with someone about that tonight. There'll be some staff, an EU staff, just standing over there towards the, near the piano there. You can come and speak to them after, straight after tonight's session. If God's been speaking to you and you want to do something about it, come and pray with our sisters and brothers from the staff team tonight after the session. But second, we live out our new life as Christians with this, with this new identity by looking back to what Jesus has done and forward to what he's promised. We always look back to Jesus' death and resurrection because fundamentally it's about who Jesus is and what he's done, not primarily about me and what I do. My new identity as a remade image bearer is completely dependent on the sufficiency of Jesus, what he's already done in his death and resurrection. And so that frees me from anxiety. Jesus has already done everything that was necessary. I get the share in his death and his resurrection because I'm united to him through faith. But his work in me is not yet complete and I look forward to what he's promised to bring to completion when Jesus returns. So I live my life now by looking back to what he has done and forward to what he promises to do. The Christian life is lived out between those two realities. And finally, in light of this new identity God has given to us, it's right that we praise him for his grace. So let me do that in prayer and then we'll do it in song. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the astounding way you have made us in your own image. We confess that so often we have failed to be faithful image bearers for you. We've failed to represent you well in this world that you have made. But we rejoice in the fact that you sent the Lord Jesus as your image bearer and that through his astounding, loving death and resurrection, you have made it possible for us to be saved from that dreadful judgment that we know we deserve. We praise and thank you for your grace. We pray for our friends here tonight who don't yet know you, that you would reveal yourself and your truth to them, that they too might be saved. And we pray, Father, you might continue this work that you've started in each of us to draw us to greater likeness of the Lord Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that you would preserve us in faithful obedience and love until that final day when your work in us is brought to completion and we see Jesus in all his glory 
and behold, we will be like him. Accept our praise and our thanks, Lord Jesus. Amen.